Well, hello. We're going to kick this thing off a little differently today. Normally, we uh, start with some singing and some worship, and uh, uh, but today I thought that it'd be uh, a fun way to kind of do something a little differently. We're going to do the worship and the singing at the end, um, because today we're going to be talking about worship. Uh, we planted this church about three years ago, a little over three years ago, and uh, when we started that uh, planning phase for planning this church and, and uh, what it would be like, uh, we, the leadership team, and we looked together in the scriptures to see what does the Bible say a church is, or, or what are some qualities, what are some characteristics that are reflective of the early church, the church that Jesus Christ gave his life for. And so as we looked in the book of Acts and other passages of Scripture, we, we see really six core values, six attributes, six things that just kind of leap off the page as you look at that early church. And, uh, and so that is what we did. We said we're going to take those values and we're going to try to pattern our ministry after those values, those things that uh, we see in the early church. And so over the next uh, six weeks, we're going to be talking about our founding principles, our core values. And we call this series Back to the Basics. Because after you start something new, over time, you kind of tend to, you kind of lose some intentionality, some excitement, some fervor, some, uh, uh, some connection to those founding principles. It's like starting a diet, right? You know, you start a diet, and then the first in five or six months, you know, might be solid. Then all of a sudden, October hits, and then November, and then December, and then all of a sudden, January, you got to turn around and start doing that diet again, because that zeal and that fervor around holiday time just kind of slips out uh, the window or slips out the door. So we're going to kind of go back through this today, and today we're going to talk about our core value of wholehearted worship. This value of the church is literally the value that kind of drives all of the other ones, the one that has the biggest impact in all of the other areas of our church. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer, and he said uh, about worship, he says, without worship, we go about miserable. Without worship, in reference to the worship of the God who created the universe, without worship, we go about miserable miserable. And that's because as human beings, we were created for worship. We were created to be in worship, to worship Almighty God. And you can see the evidence of that truth simply with your own eyes as we look at how we tirelessly devote ourselves to any and anything that we feel can bring us satisfaction, something to satisfy our souls. And with those same eyes, we can look at our world and we can see that devotion devoid of Jesus Christ brings nothing but emptiness and brokenness. King Solomon, arguably the most wisest man who has ever lived, talked about how he chased all of the things this world has to offer, all the things he could invest himself in. And he, at the end of the day, he said it was like chasing the wind. Right? You can work up a sweat. You can put a lot of energy and effort into it. But at the end of the day, you have nothing to show for it. You're left empty. And that is what worship without Christ is like. Now, uh, knowing that God was wanting us to go through this series again this year, um, I kind of had in my mind that I would be studying different passages of the Bible in regards to worship and what worship is. But this year, I've been uh, going through the Bible, reading through the Bible, trying to get through it in the year, and I've gotten most of the way through the Old Testament. And as I'm reading is the book Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel is a very interesting book, and it's not really a book that you would think to, to reference in regards to worship. 
Uh, Ezekiel is a little different book. Matter of fact, the very first, you know, couple of chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this encounter with God where God literally shows up and reveals his glory. And, and this passage of scripture is so odd, it's less like a worship song and more like a Stephen King novel. Or, or like a science fiction movie. It's full of uh, flying saucers and alien creatures and all sorts of crazy things that Ezekiel sees in this vision. Matter of fact, even secular historians point to this Ezekiel's encounter to kind of argue for potentially the existence of extraterrestrial life and its influence over humanity. So Ezekiel even starts off kind of in a weird way, but not really focusing on worship. Then there's another story in Ezekiel that, that's very common. It's about the, uh, the vision he has about the Valley of Dry Bones, where the nation of Israel has been kind of uh, put into uh, captivity or slavery into other nations. They've lost control of their own land. They've been, become morally bankrupt. They've become uh, just uh, spiritually bankrupt. They've kind of lost their hope. And the, God reveals to Ezekiel that Israel is like this valley of dry bones. Their life and the condition of my people is like this wasteland. But then he tells Ezekiel to speak over the dry bones, and as he begins to speak, the bones begin to resurrect, and uh, the, the bodies begin to take life back into them. Muscle reappears, blood reappears, uh, air goes into the lungs, and God resurrects these dry bones into a strong army prepared for battle. And it's a beautiful picture about how God, even in the depths of our brokenness, when our life feels like nothing but a wasteland, still has good things planned for us plans for good and not disaster. God is a God who restores, who rebuilds, and who um, has these promises in store for us. So those are the, the main passages in Ezekiel I think of when I think of this book of the Bible. And just like all the other Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, you know, beginning in chapter 1, going through the book, is nothing but doom and gloom. You know, for about 40 chapters, you have God saying, you're rebellious, and now you're going to get the spanking of your life. I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone. I'm going to lay waste to everything, all this adultery and, uh, and idolatry and all these things. You're, you're, I mean, you're going to get it. You thought Sodom and Gomorrah was bad? Well, you guys are going to be toast, man. And not only that, as he then turns to all the neighbors of Israel and says, you guys are going to get it too. So for 40 chapters, you're talking about judgment and wrath, judgment and wrath. But then about chapter 40... God's tone begins to change. And God comes to Ezekiel and says, you know, even after all of that, my love for Israel has never changed. And I'm going to restore Israel. And I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to become their father once again. And I'm going to bring them under the shadow of my wings. And I'm going to take care of them. And God gives Ezekiel a vision, kind of like a snapshot into the future of his eternal temple where he is going to reign and dwell on the earth with his people forever and forever and forever in eternity. A picture of God's reestablished relationship with his people. And in this vision of the temple, he not only reveals that he's going to restore this relationship and that his temple is going to be reestablished forever, but then he has an angel appear to Ezekiel, and the angel begins to measure everything in the temple. 
every level, every room, every corridor, uh, every, uh, he tells them all the different things that are going to be placed in the rooms. He's going to, he tells them who's allowed in the room, what they're allowed to do in the rooms, all of these things. And he starts throwing out dimensions and, and, and numbers. And, you know, I'm just as human as anyone else. When God starts doing that and listing all of these things and he starts throwing fractions in there, my mind automatically thinks math, it shuts down and I start to fall asleep. So, I mean, I'm just going through this. I'm like, okay, God, let's get through this stuff. Let's go back to that doom and gloom stuff. That was a little bit more interesting to read about. And as I'm going through all the dimensions of the temple, as I get to chapter 43 and and chapter 46, something just leaps off the page, and it hits me like a ton of bricks. It's, It's just this very profound but yet simple concept about worship that just rocked me. And I'm just like, yes, that is what the church needs to know. This is what the church needs to understand about wholehearted worship, why we worship, what what the point of worship is. And so we're going to talk about this today. And we're going to begin Ezekiel chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. But the verses, again, will also be on the screen. And we're going to kind of read these descriptions of what God is giving Ezekiel. And then we're going to talk about uh, what I believe his word for us in the church is today. Beginning in Ezekiel 43, verse 1, the word of the Lord says this. It says, after this, the man, or the angelic guide, brought me back around to the east gateway. Suddenly, the glory of God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of rushing waters. The whole landscape shone with his glory. This vision was just like the others I had seen, first by the Kibar River, and then when he came to destroy Jerusalem. I fell face down on the ground. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple through the east gateway. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courtyard, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I heard someone speaking to me from within the temple, while the man who had been measuring stood beside me. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place where I will rest my feet. I will live here forever among the people of Israel." They and their kings will not defile my holy name any longer by their adulterous worship of other gods or by honoring the relics of their kings who have died. They put their idol altars right next to mine with only a wall between them and me. They defiled my holy name by such detestable sin, so I consumed them in my anger. Now let them stop worshiping other gods and honoring their relics of their kings, and I will live among them forever." What's significant about this passage of Scripture is that even though in times past in the nation of Israel that, that they went to worship God, right? The temple of God was in Jerusalem. It was in their very presence. This is where God's manifested physical presence resided on the earth. The only place you could find God was in the temple in Israel. And in times past, the nation of Israel, they went to worship the Lord with all their feasts and festivals, but yet they brought their idols with them. And God is revealing that not only did they bring their idols with them, but then they set up altars to their idols right next to the place where they could find God in the temple, right next to the holy place of God. So instead of encountering the presence of God in the Holy of Holies where his throne was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where he showed up to reveal himself to the people, they stopped short of the Holy of Holies and bowed to the altar of their false gods. And because they were on the other side of that wall of separation that God is referring to, they were on the other side of the wall, they never received from God what they desperately desired. 
And see, by doing this, they defiled the name of God while worshiping in the name of God. They weren't worshiping him. They were worshiping their idols. And the Lord reveals it drove his presence out of the temple. And we can apply this to ourselves because we have idols in our own lives. See, the apostle Paul says that some have made their stomach their God, that the way they devote themselves to filling their belly reveals whose God is really their God or who their God really is. We have idols in our own lives by the things we devote ourselves to that take place over our relationship with God. And because we have idols in our lives, there too is a wall of separation between us and the Lord when we go to worship. We too gather for worship in his name, but because of those idols, often stop short of his presence and just bow at the altar of other gods when we worship. We do this all the time in our lives when we devote ourselves to something other than God, when we choose to disobey or rebel against what we know his will is for our lives. You see, Israel gathered for worship in his temple, but they did not honor his name in all their ceremony. And because their hearts and minds were distracted by their obsessions, God was present. God was available, and yet, for them, he was so far out of reach. And this is how it was for the nation of Israel by the time Ezekiel has this vision, by the time Ezekiel shows up in his ministry. But now in this vision, God is revealing another way. He's revealing to Ezekiel that in this future temple, in this eternal temple, where I will live with my people forever and ever and ever, where there's not going to be any more sin or idolatry or, or these things, where I'm going to reign among my people forever, he reveals that the worship of his people is also going to be different. That our worship is going to be true and honorable. See, Jesus said that there was coming a day when true worshipers would arise and they would worship him in spirit and in truth. I believe part of that is fulfilled in the church, but yet another day is coming when he's going to make all things new, where sin will be no more. We'll see him face to face and dwell among him forever and ever, and there will not be an opportunity for us to get anything wrong at that point. There's coming a day where the true worshipers are going to arise. And I believe this is the day that God is revealing to Ezekiel that he's a prophesying about, the day that God is revealing to him in this vision. And what struck me so powerfully as I was reading this revelation was something that was, to me, was just so profound, but yet so very simple, and even more than simple, very subtle. And it was found among all the boring measurements of the temple and details of how they, they were going to conduct themselves. And it's what God reveals to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 46. I mean, for me, this just kind of blew my mind. And I've been like boring Tony with this all week just talking about it. Um, but it just has really captivated me and, and convicted me. And if you're not paying close attention to it, I, I think just as we normally would, you would probably miss it. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Ezekiel 46. And then we'll reveal this truth. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It says, the east gateway of the inner courtyard will be closed during the six workdays each week, but it will be open on the Sabbath days and on the days of the new moon celebrations. The prince will enter the entry room of the gateway from the outside, and then he'll stand by the gatepost while the priest offers his burnt offering and peace offering. He'll bow down and worship inside the gateway passage and then go back out the way he came. The gateway will not be closed until evening. 
The common people will bow down and worship the Lord in front of this gateway on Sabbath days and the days of the new moon celebrations. Each Sabbath day, the prince will present to the Lord burnt offering of six lambs and one ram, all with no defects. He'll present a grain offering of a basket of choice flour to go with the ram and whatever amount of flour he chooses to go with each lamb. And he is to offer one gallon of olive oil for each basket of flour. At the new moon celebrations, he will bring one young bull, six lambs, and one ram, all with no defects. With the young bull, he must bring a basket of choice flour for a grain offering. And with the ram, he must bring another basket of flour. And with each lamb, he is to bring whatever amount of flour he chooses to give. With each basket of flour, he must offer one gallon of olive oil. The prince must enter the gateway through the entry room, and he must leave the same way. But when the people come in through the north gateway to, the worship, to worship the Lord during the religious festivals, they must leave by the south gateway. And those who enter through the south gateway must leave by the north gateway. They must never leave by the same gateway they came in, but must always use the opposite gateway. So God tells Ezekiel that the prince must leave the same way he came in. Now, this term for prince in, in the Old Testament, in the original language, literally means ruler, leader, or someone of high esteem. And this being the eternal throne of God, the eternal temple of God, we know who that prince is. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21, prophesies this. He says, they will have their own ruler again. He will come from their own people. I will invite him to approach me, says the Lord, for who would dare to come unless invited. The prophet Jeremiah is prophesying of the coming of the Messiah. He's prophesying of Jesus and his ministry, who we know is going to return and reign on David's throne forever and forever and forever, that he is going to be our King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to preside over the peoples of the world. And here we see Jesus in the temple as the one leading the procession of people into the presence of the Most High in worship for all eternity. And even now, in this day and age, in this moment in time, Jesus is still our high priest. He's interceding on our behalf in the very presence of God in heaven. And because of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, because of his shed blood, because of his death and his resurrection, we too now can approach the very throne room of God. It is Jesus who leads us there through our faith in him. And he will lead us there now, and he will also lead us there then, in eternity. And even though that imagery is, I believe, a powerful thing to think about, how God, through Christ, is even leading us into that place of intimacy with him, to that place where we can encounter his presence, even now. That strong imagery, what I find even more profound something even greater, the thing that hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading this passage is what I read in Ezekiel 46, verse 9. In verse 9, it says, When the people come in through the north gateway to worship the Lord during religious festivals, they must leave by the south gateway. Those who enter through the south gateway must leave by the north gateway. They must never leave by the same gateway they came in, but must always use the opposite gateway. Did you catch that? Didn't that just blow your mind? I mean, are you not like freaking out right now about worship? No? You don't see it? I believe God is revealing to us in this passage, and the core concept of this message in regards to wholehearted worship is this. When we gather for worship, 
We are not meant to leave the same way we came in. That means when we encounter the presence of God, we should be changed. When you encounter the presence of God, just like Ezekiel, he said, when I saw the vision of God, just like I did the first time by the Kibar River, I fell down and worshiped. I bowed to the ground because he saw himself the way he really was. When you encounter the presence of God, you see yourself with supernatural clarity. Your depravity, your sinfulness is ever before you, and you see how desperately you need a Savior. While at the same time, you see how God is a supernaturally loving God who loves us with a never-ending, never-failing, never-giving-up-on-us kind of love who wants to raise us up, restore us, and transform our lives. In the presence of God, you can't help but be moved deep down in the depths of your soul because his presence penetrates the very depths of who you are. This is what Jesus meant about uh, worshiping in spirit. That word for spirit literally is your entire being, the sentient element in man that's responsible for thinking, feeling, and living. When you encounter the presence of God, you will know him in that intimacy of worship. And the more you know him, the more you want to know, the more you want to know him deeper and in a truer way. Because in his presence, you find the true meaning of life. In his presence, you find purpose. And you find ultimately the only thing that can satisfy your soul. According to BrainyQuote.com, Bill Maher, who's an openly declared anti-religious comedian and commentator, he said this. He said, let's face it. God has a big ego problem. Why do we always have to worship him? You see, from the outside, when we see the commands to worship and even these instructions on how people are supposed to worship in the temple, from someone on the outside or an unbeliever, you know, that could be a very rational or reasonable uh, uh, perception. But you see, wholehearted worship, however, is not a command to stroke the ego of the Lord. God needs nothing from us. He's perfect. He's complete. Wholehearted worship is a response of a broken people who are introduced to the never-failing love of the Almighty. You see, though we wait on our heavenly home to come in the future, right now as his people, we have the opportunity to experience that now in the presence. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul tells the church of Rome, he says, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. Paul is telling the church of Rome that we have what we have now, what we experience now is a taste of what's to come. That right now, this is not all there is. There's something greater even coming, a future glory that is awaiting us in eternity. But even though Many of God's promises are yet future. They're yet to be fulfilled. We've been given the Spirit of God so that right now where we are, we can have a taste of what is to come. We can experience now the joy to come in heaven. And I truly believe that that joy is most readily experienced when the people of God gather to worship God and access the very presence of God. But you see, sadly, just like Israel who had access to God, they also had their walls of separation. 
And when they gathered to worship, because of those walls of separation, instead of making it all the way into the holy place where God was, to have a life-changing encounter with the Most High, they stopped short at their altars along the way. And though they had a religious experience in the name of God, they left the same way they came in. Worship made no difference in their lives. And ask yourself this question. How many times do we gather in this place together with our walls of separation in tow, our defenses up, and instead of following Christ into the holy place, we stop short at altars dedicated to false gods, and we leave the same way we came in? We have so many different walls that stifle our worship from being life-changing. You know, some walls, I was talking with my wife about the subject, you know, some walls are just due to traditionalism and formalism. We have this concept of how we should act and behave and expectations of each other in the church gathering. And those of you that have been in church your whole life, you know that you've been trained that there's certain things you should or shouldn't do. And many of you, you wait on instruction by those on the platform for times to stand, times to sit, times to clap. Don't clap on that song, but it's okay to clap on this song. You know, you know, shout hallelujah. Don't shout hallelujah. You wait to be instructed every step of the way. And unless you're instructed, you do not feel comfortable to just express worship to God, what's, what's bubbling up in your own heart, because you feel like it's out of place and maybe even inappropriate. You see, we see biblically worship has formalities, but it's not formal. It's not necessarily formal. Jesus said to worship in spirit, which means with your innermost being. And different emotions require a different external uh, 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 response. In order to be able to worship with your whole self, you should not feel restricted in your worship to God and how you express that worship to God. That's why here at Vertical Life Church, we hope to create a culture of worship where you feel free to express worship to God uh, the way that you desire. That when we're singing, if you want to come forward and kneel down and pray, you have the freedom to do that. If you want to stand, you can stand. If you want to sit, you can sit. If you want to raise your hands, by all means. If you want to just pray, you know, you have the ability to express worship to God the way your heart heart is desiring the way it's connected. See, the Bible is full of all sorts of expressions for worship, because God is a just and holy God who loves to be worshiped out of the depths of our hearts. But for many, this traditional upbringing creates a wall that restricts freedom to express, and it fosters this attitude like, I'm not doing that, and don't you dare ask me to do that. I'm not going to behave like that. And it also creates this perception for those who do have freedom to worship like that, that somehow it's okay to become critical of them. And when you're restricted in your worship and you're bound by this wall of traditionalism and formalism, when you gather for worship, you spend more time looking at what everybody else is doing and you miss your encounter with Almighty God. Because the very traditionalism that you hold to has become a God in your life and now has stopped you from entering the presence of God. And it's the same on the other side and vice versa. Those of you that have freedom, you love to express worship to God. You have this freedom, but you're not considerate of anybody else around you. And you look at those who don't worship like you do and you say, what's wrong with them? They must not love God. And so you become critical of them. And so worship essentially stops being about God and starts being about how cool you are and how you worship. And therefore, your God is revealed and you miss the encounter with the presence. We have many different walls. There are those who 
walk in here week after week with unconfessed sin. Sins in your life, or maybe even sins from your past that you still carry guilt and shame with you every single day. And that guilt and shame makes you feel like God doesn't really love you, but you come in hopes that maybe one day he will, and you're so stricken with that guilt and shame that when we go to gather for worship, you're feeling more about how down you are, how unworthy you are, and how, uh, how dirty you are than how much God loves you and wants to change that into something holy and beautiful. And that shame and that guilt gets in the way from you to receive the love that God has for you because ultimately you're worshiping the rejection that you feel. You are rejecting the very thing God himself has not rejected, and that's you. But that shame and that guilt gets in the way of you opening your heart to encounter the very presence of God. And you see, I know in my own life, Maybe I was dealing with something through the week, or maybe my wife and I just had an argument on the way to church, but I walked in with a bad attitude. Or I knew somebody had a problem with me, or I had a problem with somebody else, and I thought, well, I'm a leader. I just have to suck it up, and I have to go do what I need to do. You know, leaders don't get the choice of phoning it in. You know, when leaders phone it in, it affects every aspect of the ministry. So, you know, we, we push through. And it's okay on one respect because ultimately God is worthy of our obedience regardless of how we feel. You know, the angels before the throne of heaven never stop saying glory to God in the highest and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is worthy of our worship regardless of how we feel. But honestly, sometimes I just don't feel it. I just don't feel it. My life is in the way. And even though I pushed through, and even though many of you, you would have no idea that we, you know, someone on stage or on the platform or serving and leading was struggling with something, you'd have no idea because they're spending more time pouring into you than receiving. But when I'm not feeling it, because I have this problem with somebody else or I have this issue in my life, I got to be honest, I don't make it into the throne room. I can sing well, I can play well, I can teach well, but... If I were honest, I would say that I didn't make it into the throne room of God that day. In Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus said, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come offer your sacrifice to God. You see, when we know we have personal issues, we have personal strife in our relationships, and we refuse to reconcile with other people, our worship becomes pointless. Our gifts to God become pointless. And the question is why? It's because we have stopped at the altar of pride. It's pride that says, I don't want to forgive. It's pride that says, I don't want to make things right. It's pride that says, it's their problem, not mine. It's pride that says, I'm just going to sit here and stew about it. It's better that I just don't make a big deal about what's going on and just let bitterness overflow and overtake your heart. And so when we gather to worship in that state, we stop short of the altar of pride and disobedience. And we leave the very same way we came in. And this is why wholehearted worship is so vital. It is so vital for the believer in Christ. In the Ten Commandments, the very first command God gave in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, is that you must not have any other gods but me. No other gods, no idols, 
No false gods in your life. And that seems easy enough. Well, I call myself a Christian. I believe in Jesus. God is my God. Therefore, I must not have any other idols. However, we know biblically that anything we obsess or devote ourselves to over God is an idol in our lives. So for God to be the only God in your life, it means more than just calling yourself a Christian. And Jesus describes how to fulfill this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 39. He says, you must love the Lord your God, say it with me, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, other translations include. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second one is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord with all of your heart. Hold nothing back. Every chamber, every square inch, every piece of you that you have, and then live that love out by how you love other people. You see, we are all deeply selfish. Every one of us, humankind, as sinners, we are selfish. And what Jesus is getting at with loving your neighbor as yourself is he's saying, be selfish on someone else's behalf. Love someone else the way you love yourself. Put them first. Deny yourself and prefer someone else. This is how you love people the way you love yourself. And by loving God with all we are and being selfish on other people's behalf, this is how we have no other gods before our Lord. And this is vital to understand because if we want to be changed in worship, if we want to move past the altars of idols and make it into the holy place when we gather together, then we have to proactively tear down the idols in every area of our lives. This is what it's meant by wholehearted worship. If we want to know uh, that we've encountered God and we want people to know that we've encountered God by the way our lives are different, if we want to leave differently than the way we came in, then we have to put God first in our relationships. We have to put God first in our finances. We have to put God first in how we set up our day and our priorities. We have to put God first in our marriages. We have to put God first in our entertainment. We have to put God first in our jobs. We have to put God first in our communities. We have to put God first in our politics and in our personal beliefs. God is the priority, period. This is how we have wholehearted worship. Everything we do, am, and live, and be flows from who we are in Jesus Christ. We even have to put God first in our ministry. And in our worship, which means it's not about me being comfortable. It's about me being wholly his. It's my experience that God specializes in taking people where they're comfortable and stretching them in order to make them holy and accomplish his will. Modern American Christianity, we thought it's about being comfortable. It's not. It's about being wholly his. We have to love him with all of our heart, not just a portion of it. And when there is nothing between us and the Lord, then when we gather for worship, or even just worship in the privacy of our own homes, we will encounter God. And we will not leave the same way we came in. See, this is a powerful thing to understand because wholehearted worship isn't something that God wants from you. It's something he wants for you. 
Psalm 22, verse 3 says, You are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. God literally inhabits or dwells in the praises of his people. When we gather for worship, God comes down and makes his abode among us. He is here. He is in the worship service. He is moving, speaking, acting, and, and working in powerful ways. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. In the presence of God is found the way of life. It's found unspeakable joy and ultimate fulfillment. God wants wholehearted worship for you because he knows only true satisfaction is found in him. This is why you were created. And to be satisfied completely in the Lord, and that satisfaction is available and only available in his presence. And as God's people find satisfaction in him, when we worship, he reveals his presence Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this. He says, the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears, and he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. In God's presence, you find forgiveness. In God's presence, you find salvation. In God's presence, you find a loving Father who will never reject you or cast you aside. You'll find a father who calms all your fears, a father who takes delight in you and sings over you songs of joy. Those of you who walk in here so burdened with shame and guilt, God is not condemning you. He is delighting in you and singing over you songs of joy. You find a comforter in the presence of God. You find a healer in the presence of God. You find a friend who sticks closer than a brother in the presence of God. His name is the I am that I am. He is everything you could ever want and all you will ever need. And he's available. And this is why we leave differently than the way we came in. Because as the world is a dry and desert place where there is no satisfaction, there is no refreshing, it tries to tear us down and destroy us. The presence of God restores and heals and it makes all things new. Every week, we gather is an opportunity for a fresh start. And God wants no other gods before him. He wants you to worship him wholeheartedly so that nothing in your life can create a wall of separation to keep you from his presence. He wants nothing in your life that will cause you to stop short of the holy place only to bow down at an altar dedicated to an idol. Ask yourself this question as we get ready to go into a time of worship. Ask yourself this. When I come to worship, when I gather with the church to worship the Lord, do I leave the same way I came in? Or am I being changed? When I gather for worship, am I different? Am I leaving the same way I came in? If the answer is you are leaving the same way, then ask yourself this. What walls are in the way of me entering the presence of God? What are my walls? And what idols do I need to cast down and tear down so I don't get distracted on the way to the throne room? I encourage all of us today to begin walking past our idols, to reach out with your heart and worship with all that you are as we go into a time of worship and purpose in your heart 
that you're not going to stop short of the throne room, but you're going to continue to praise and continue to worship until you encounter the presence of God. Let's bow our heads in this place as the band begins to, to play. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The first step to encountering the presence of God is becoming one of his children. And today, you need to reach out, and you need to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And right now, you can do that from the quietness of this room. You can pray this prayer with me. You can simply say, Father in heaven, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and adopt me as one of your children. I trust in you all the days of my life, now and forever. A simple prayer like that can take you from wandering in a world chasing the wind to finding the well spring of life, the source of true satisfaction, understanding why you were made the way you were made. God wants to do a work in your life. Maybe you're here today and part of the walls in your life is not being confident to take a step of faith. Maybe you know you need to be baptized. Next week, we're going to have a baptism service. And you know you've trusted in Christ, but you haven't taken that next step in following the Lord in baptism. You need to take that step. You need to say, God, I'm going to lay down the, the idol of fear in my life, and I'm going to take a step of faith to honor you. And before you leave here today, just stop by the VIP table and let them know you want to be baptized. Maybe your upbringing the way you've been taught has influenced your freedom. And you're more worried about what other people think of you than the fact that God Almighty is here before you. God is here. Jesus said when we worship him in spirit, we worship him with all that we are, we can access the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in this life of faith. And he goes on to proceed to tell us that in their worship gathering, when his people are praising the Lord, the presence of God, the Father in heaven is present, the Spirit is present, the Son is present, all the angels of heaven are present, even the saints who've gone before us are present. Here in the presence of God, when we worship him, we are translated from earth to heaven and have access to the throne room of God. What is in the way? What is in the way of your heart from connecting to the Lord? Those are the things we need to cast aside. Just a moment when the band begins to uh, sing. This is going to be our time of response. We're going to worship the Lord for some time. Maybe you're here today and you need to come forward and you need to lay some stuff down. You come and you pray. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to start taking steps of faith and walk in your giftings. We have the microphone set up for those that have a word from the Lord to encourage the church. In between songs, you're welcome to come and, and share that encouraging word. Maybe you're here today and you just want to pray with people and you want to take a step of faith and say, you know what, I'm going to begin praying for the church and for my Christian brothers and sisters. I want to pray for my city, my state, my community, my nation. 
Maybe there are family members in your life that are struggling that you want to pray for, and you want to begin warring on their behalf. Now is the time where we respond. We respond to the Lord with wholehearted worship. We don't worry about what anybody else thinks or what anybody else is doing. We respond to what God is doing in our life right here and right now. Father, I pray for the church. God, I pray that we would be a people of wholehearted worship. That every week we gather in this place, we would never leave the same way we come in. That we would follow Jesus right into the holy of holies. Be with us now as the church responds to your word and to your presence and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.